Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Donald Trump has proposed cuts to education in the 2021 federal budget. In his State of the Union address, the president referred to, quote, failing government schools and repeated his call for choice in some schooling, a favorite subject of Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. But as the presidential campaigns pick up speed and the debate over Donald Trump's conduct continues, how much attention to education is education receiving? Have any of the candidates suggested something as unorthodox in public education as Medicare for all would be in health care? Educational policy analyst, NYU professor, and former assistant secretary of education, Diane Ravitch, surveys the landscape of education reform, especially the ongoing battle over privatization in her latest book, Slaying Goliath the passionate resistance to privatization and the fight to save America's private schools. It is published by Knopf, and I'm very pleased that it brings Diane Ravitch to our show now. Great to see you. Thank you, Leonard. Wonderful to be, it's always wonderful to be with you. Well, six years ago, you published Reign of Error. It was a bestseller, and it also uh, talked about the dangers to America's public schools. Um, but uh, despite the fact that it was a bestseller, <laughs> are we, has the situation worsened? Over the past six years? You know, what I argue in my new book is that the situation is actually getting better, in large part because it's become so clear what's behind it. Uh, Betsy DeVos is uh, the most unpopular member of the cabinet. Uh, She has raised the stakes, and I think she makes the general public aware that what the goal of the Trump administration is is to privatize uh, public money, and to have public funds flowing to religious schools. And we're probably going to have a Supreme Court decision this term uh, that will strike down the barrier between church and state Mm. and allow that to happen. So in some ways, we're in a very dangerous time, but also in terms of of educating the public, Betsy DeVos has done a lot uh, unintentionally. She once described public education as a dead end. What do you think she meant by that? Well, what she meant by that is she never attended public schools. Her children never attended public schools. And she doesn't understand the role of public schools in our democracy, which is to provide a ladder for every child and to provide our goal of being equality of educational opportunity. And I don't think that anyone would say that we've achieved that goal. But what she's saying is abandon that goal and let everybody uh, just float their own boat and go out and find a religious school that uh, see, meets their needs. Didn't she have significant influence over the direction of the public school system in Michigan? She did. What uh, happened there? She she and her husband, Dick DeVos, uh, tried in the year 2000. Uh, actually, they didn't try. They succeeded in getting a referendum on the state ballot uh, to allow vouchers. Most states in this country have a, a constitutional amendment saying no public money for religious schools. So in the year 2000, they got a, a, a state referendum that was rejected by, I think, 68% of the people of Michigan. Um, it's worth noting that while she's pushing hard for vouchers, and while vouchers are very, very popular in the far right uh, of the Republican Party, they have never, ever passed a referendum. They've been taken to the voters again and again. Most recently in uh, Arizona, which is obviously is a very red state, the Koch brothers and the DeVos family put a lot of money behind expanding vouchers. Arizona already has four or five voucher programs, and they wanted even more vouchers. And it was rejected by the people of Arizona by a margin of 65 to 35. 
So it's it's not popular. And there are no states where things have gone their way. Uh, yeah, there are there, about half the states now have some form of voucher program. Oh. Uh, Florida being the most prominent of them, even though Florida's state constitution says no vouchers, and Florida had a referendum where the voters said no vouchers, hmm. and the legislature passed them anyway. And the reason being that they uh, there's a lot of money behind the voucher movement. And so it goes directly to the state legislators, and they bypass the voters, and they bypass the state constitution. Now, it's not just religious schools. It's also charter schools. Um, how much of a distinction are we making between the two? Well, there is a, a large distinction. Uh, the voucher schools are virtually completely unaccountable and unregulated. And uh, in, in Florida, for example, you can teach in a voucher school with, while being a high school dropout, uh, and they can teach whatever they want to teach, and they're uh, the the editor at Huffington Post uh, did a survey of 7,000 voucher schools, and she found that what they had in common was so many of them were teaching racism, sexism, bigotry, homophobia, um, teaching science from the Bible. It's just a, a, a giant step back of about 200 years. Uh, the charter schools vary dramatically in quality, uh, but where the charter schools are harmful, in my view, is that they divert resources away from the public schools. And since about 85 to 90% of children in this country go to public schools, that means 85 to 90% will have larger class sizes and uh, fewer course offerings, and they will lose the arts so that a handful of kids can go to charter schools. Charter schools obviously have some money. Uh, one charter school uh, company ran ads protesting uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio's policies uh, I think it's the success Academy or one yes, of those schools. that that was in New York City um, there's a chain uh, called uh, success Academy and uh, their number keeps growing they have several billionaires on their board they have fundraisers every year where they raise millions and millions of dollars and uh, Eva Moskowitz who runs them is paid a salary far in excess of any school superintendent anywhere in the country uh, they're over, they, they're overloaded with money. Money is not their problem. Their problem is that uh, they accept children at the very beginning, and then they start getting rid of them. So their first class and their first school was 78 children. By the time high school graduation came around, only 16 of the 78 were left. So they, they pretty much culled out the ones that they didn't want. And the ones they did want were the ones that got high test scores so that they were able to brag to their billionaire supporters uh, that they had the highest test scores in the state. When uh, Michael Bloomberg was mayor, Eva Moskowitz was a member of the city council. Uh, so did she have much of an impact? Because uh, New York City, as I, you said, uh, has the Success Academy's uh, charter schools. Um, have, they been, have they been a success? Despite, whether the they, their name is a, obviously a success. Yes. Well, they've been a success only in that they get high test scores, but what they're not successful at is that they're not a model for public schools because public schools have to take everyone. Uh, they don't want children with disabilities. They don't want children who can't read or speak English. Uh, they don't want children who are difficult in any sense, and so they kick kids out. Uh, they have a very, very high attrition rate. And I've had this argument with friends of mine who contribute to Success Academy, and I say this is not a model. This would be like saying that uh, Bronx Science is a model for all mm -hmm. schools in New York City. We know it's not a model. It's for the very smartest kids, or Stuyvesant. Th these are 
extremely selective schools. It's tough to get into them, and they take only the very top. Uh, Success Academy is that kind of a charter school. There are other charter schools like Success Academy, uh, like the highest-ranking charter schools in the country are called BASIS, B-A-S-I-S. New York City has a privately-run BASIS, but in Arizona and a few other states, they're charter schools, and they accept everybody, and but they start dropping out because they can't pass AP exams. So by the time they reach the end of the line, they have incredibly smart kids who can pass six, eight, 10 AP exams, but they, their population does not look like the population of Arizona. Their population, their enrollment uh, is Asian and white and with very few kids who are Hispanic or black. When you were an assistant secretary of education for President George H.W. Bush, didn't you promote high-stakes standardized testing, charter schools, and 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 the failing schools narrative? What's well, led you I to, did. to publicly renounce all of yes, those? Yes, I views? did, and I was very much a supporter of high-stakes standardized testing. I was a supporter of national standards, uh, and charters were just getting off the ground. So we didn't do a lot of promoting of charters, uh, and vouchers were at that time not much of a topic. But I was on board with that agenda, and it was in the early 2000s that I, and I had been involved in several very conservative think tanks, but I, I felt that everything we were trying to do had failed. Uh, apparently, no one else agreed with me because no one else left the think tank world, uh, which is a very nice, very well-funded world to be in. Uh, but I concluded that the charter schools were uh, failing as often as they were succeeding, uh, that vouchers were a dead end, uh, and that high-stakes standardized testing was a terrible idea, uh, which I'll be happy to go into. I, I've turned against high-stakes, I've turned against standardized testing, period. And the reason? The reason is that um, I said for seven years, President Clinton appointed me to something uh, that's it's the National Testing Board. It's called the National Assessment of Educational Progress, or it's known as NAEP. And they give standardized tests every other year to samples of students across America. Sitting on that board, uh, I saw that nothing ever changed, that, that, that the, the standardized tests are normed on a bell curve, and the bell curve never closes. And the kids who are advantaged, who come from high-income families, dominate the top half, and the kids with low incomes dominate the bottom half. So when you hear people say, we're going to close the achievement gap, they're not going to close the achievement gap because it's built in. The design of the standardized test requires an achievement gap. Uh, There's no way to ever close it. So it's a hoax. And the other reason that I turned against standardized testing is that um, they're they're useless, Uh, by which I mean the kids take the test in the spring, usually in March or April. The results come in in August or September. The The children no longer have the same teacher, so the teacher's not learning anything. And then when the reports come in, they really don't tell the the new teacher anything about the student other than this child is above, below, (laughs) way above, way below. And that's no help at all. So if a test has no diagnostic value, then it has no point. I I wonder about how New York's Board of Education deals with some of these things. My high school was closed down as a low-performing school years after I left. But still, uh, there's no longer an Eastern District High School. Uh, so uh, obviously they made a decision that there weren't enough kids doing well in that school. Well, what happened was that— Shouldn't they have just improved the school, got better teachers? Uh, I would say the pro- problem was that there was a 
dramatic change in population, and this happened to all of the large high schools. And particularly when uh, Bloomberg was mayor, he made a determination to close large high schools. He just said, if, they, if you don't have the test scores, we'll, we'll close you down. And so many schools, Jamaica High School being one of the prime examples of this, it had programs for kids with disabilities. It had cho programs for kids who didn't speak English. It had programs for kids who wanted to go prepare for medical science careers. It offered many options to many different kinds of kids, from kids who had real serious learning problems to kids who were very advanced. And yet the overall scores were low. And so despite the complaints and, and the protest of students and teachers and parents and alumni, uh, the school was broken up into a lot of small schools. Now, when you my, take a my parents went to Jamaica High, uh, my brother and I went to Eastern District. <laughs> well, when, when you when you take a school that's very, that has three thousand, I kids, feel like we're being discriminated against. But when you when you break up a school like that into five high schools or six high schools, none of them offers advanced math, none of them offers advanced physics, none of them offers specialized courses. So. There's a trade-off. Uh, you get six uh, general high schools that offer no special programs for anyone. And where do the kids with disabilities go? They, they, all will, they will get shuffled off somewhere else. You mentioned uh, Michael Bloomberg. Um, he did ha drop out of the race, but he still uh, played a major role in New York's education. The New York Times did a number of charter schools increase enormously while he was mayor and one of his campaign spokesmen said, Mike has always supported charter schools. He opened a record number of charter schools as mayor of New York City, and he will champion the issue as president. Well, the interesting thing about the Democratic primary is that Michael Bloomberg was literally the only candidate in the race before they started dropping out, the only one who, who was a champion of charter schools, which shows you how much the discussion has changed. Uh, it, there used to be a bipartisan agreement because of Charters were supported by Bill Clinton. Charters were supported by Barack Obama. And there, there came an awakening, in part because of the, the incidents I describe in my book, where uh, teachers and parents said, we don't want a charter school. The charter school will destroy our public school. And so there was uh, a realignment so that now charter schools are associated with Betsy DeVos and Donald Trump. And Michael Bloomberg was the only person running in the Democratic primary who said, I will champion them. No one else said that. In 2018, his foundation announced its plan to spend $375 million to promote charters, merit pay, and the firing of failing teachers, among other reforms. He also um, spent millions to promote charter schools in Louisiana, of all states. Well, the, no one has done the research, no reporter that I have seen has done the research to show how many states Michael Bloomberg was spending money in. He was spending money in Idaho and California, and, and I mean, there, I, I've yet to come across a state where he didn't spend money to promote school choice. Uh, he wasn't doing anything to promote better public schools. Uh, he's, it, to me, it's very odd when you think about Michael Bloomberg. He had total control of the New York City public schools. He appointed every member of the Board of Education, and yet he decided, I guess, well, gee, I don't know how to do this. Maybe I should just outsource the schools to, to private operators. So he did encourage the proliferation of charters, and by the time he left, there were close to 200 of them. Uh, and some, like like uh, Success Academy, uh, which practices high attrition, got very high scores. Others got very low scores. I mean, this is the story of charters across the country. Some get high scores. Some get very. Some get the worst scores in the state. 
uh, and some every almost every day there's a, another story of a charter school closing because zero percent of its students are passing the state uh, test. On the other hand, they are the darlings of certain people in politics. Uh, I'm speaking with Diane Ravitch, whose latest book is Slaying Goliath, The Passionate Resistance to Privatization and the Fight to Save America's Public Schools. It's published by Knopf. This is Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI, New York, 99.5 FM. You mentioned teachers and parents. There's been a surge of advocacy by teachers uh, and their unions. Uh, is part of their is this what we're discussing part of their concerns oh yes uh the the uh it, it started in february of 2018 it started with west virginia teachers walking out on mass and they were particularly upset because first of all they were very low paid and then the government decided to increase their health care costs which meant that they were paid even less uh, but part of their agenda was we don't want charter schools in west virginia it will make our schools even poorer uh, as this Red for Red movement spread across the country, as, as it went to Oklahoma and to Colorado and to Arizona and then on to California, uh, part of the demands of the teachers was we don't want charter schools. So this became a, and it wasn't just that uh, they were trying to protect their turf. Uh, it was that charter schools are overwhelmingly funded by right-wing foundations. So when we talk about Bloomberg's funding, that's only the tip of the iceberg. The biggest funding for charter schools comes from the Walton family. The Walton family owns Walmart. They're uh, probably the richest family in America. The the three, uh, the sister and two brothers are together cumulatively worth over $150 billion. Do we know why they've made this one of their causes? Well, I think the main reason that they love charter schools is because it's a way of getting rid of unions. Mm -hmm. uh, Walmart is non-union, and they think that's the way the world should work. Uh, I, I don't think they have any interest in making money, although there are people, entrepreneurs, who go into charter schools and make a lot of money on real estate. That's not the Walton model. The Walton model is union busting. Now, how have politicians responded to the protests by parents and students and teachers against charter schools, testing standards, and some of the other reforms popular with wealthy philanthropists like Surprise, surprise, Bill Gates, who is who we definitely will not call a conservative po politically. Well, uh, Bill Gates, in terms of schooling, is w closer to Betsy DeVos uh, than to, let's say, Randy Weingarten. Um, he's uh, really, I, I think, not a friend to uh, public education at all. He has, as I show in my book, he has imposed one nutty idea after another on the schools and he thinks because he's so rich he's probably i guess the second richest individual uh jeff bezos's number i follow these things because mm. the billionaires are so deeply involved in uh promoting privatization jeff bezos is the richest and bill gates is the second richest i know he doesn't like to be number two at anything but he'll have an idea and that I, then everyone around him says that's a great idea and so they say well why don't we measure teachers according to the test scores of their students. If you're a good teacher, your, your students get high test scores. If you're a bad teacher, your students have low test scores. Well, he put hundreds of millions, if not billions, into promoting this idea. He actually got it written into federal legislation. Uh, Arne Duncan apparently did whatever Bill Gates wanted him to do. And so it became, most states have laws now saying that teachers will be evaluated to a significant degree by the test scores of their students. Uh, it happens to be a very stupid idea, 
because and Arne Duncan was uh, was, uh, was Barack Obama's, Obama's Secretary, Secretary of Education. Education for six years. Seven years. Seven of his eight years, Arne Duncan was there. And Duncan loved this idea that teachers would be evaluated. He said, you know, why are we protecting them? Why are we hiding their failure? Well, the fact is, if you're teaching a, a room full of kids who don't speak English, you're not going to see high test scores. If you're teaching kids with disabilities, you're not going to see high test scores. If you're teaching in, in a very leafy suburb uh, where the the parents are willing to pay 20000 or more per kid, uh, oh, the test scores will be great, and suddenly you're a great teacher. So there were experiments with this, and, and it's never worked. Uh, the, the biggest experiment was carried out in about a half a dozen districts, and what they found was that, that teachers didn't want to teach the low-performing children. They avoided those classes because they knew that it would bring their ratings down. The, it's, uh, studies indicate that one in three uh, children, American children, are living with significant deprivation. That's the highest percentage among all the wealthy nations. Um, and uh, are you suggesting that they're the ones who are most affected by this move toward privatization? Well, what I'm suggesting is that poverty is the root cause of low test scores. And we all of the things we've been doing over the past 20 or 30 years have been a way of avoiding the subject uh, that matters most, which is the well-being of children. Uh, when children uh, are well-fed, when they have good medical care, when they come home and they have a home to come home to, uh, and their parents are educated and they uh, bring bring them to the library, all those good things happen in advantage homes. They will have their scores will be fine. Uh, the scores are like the last point in the line, but we're treating them as though they were the causal factor when in fact they're just the end result of everything that precedes them. Uh, it's very tough when kids don't have medical care, don't have nutrition, uh, and don't aren't even sure they have a home to go to uh, for them to do well in school. I mentioned the uh, proposed budget for 2021's fiscal year. What was proposed for public education in the the by the Trump administration? Well, I can tell you that they proposed to slash the budget. I, f I forget the percentage. A huge 8%. percentage. How, what percent? I have 8% here, 8%? But which is a l still a lot of money. Well, what they wanted to do was to take 29 fairly popular programs and combine them into a block grant. Republicans have been wanting to do this ever since the 1990s. Their idea was we really don't need a federal Department of Education. Which was created by the Carter administration? No. It, uh, the, oh, yes. The Department of Education yeah. was created by Jimmy Carter. And that was back in 1980, in his last year in office, right before Reagan came in. And uh, it started small, and it's grown. And it's, it's not still not huge, but its main job has been equity. And under the uh, Obama administration and before that the George W. Bush administration, it, de it developed a level of power over local public schools that it never had, which is to say— in the law, that every every child from grades three through eight has to be tested every year. And that was the essence of George W. Bush's No Child Left Behind. Mm -hmm. Test every child every year. And it was based on a hoax. The hoax was that there had been a, a miracle in Texas. And during the 2000 campaign, when George W. Bush was uh, going across the country he, and calling himself a compassionate conservative, he said, there had been a Texas miracle. All you have to do is test every child every year report these scores publicly by school, not by child. Uh, and some schools will be rewarded for raising test scores, and some will be humiliated. And this creates a miracle. The scores go up, 
and <clears throat> it, uh, it was a hoax. There was no Texas miracle. We can now look back 20 years and say, uh, Texas is not the leading state in the country. Massachusetts is. So no child left behind has been a, a failure? No Child Left Behind was a dismal failure. Uh, all that I did was followed was, by Every Student Succeeds Act. Was that any right. better? Well, if, if you take the, the three big programs, number one was the law called No Child Left Behind. Mm-hmm. That was passed in 2001, signed into law in 2002, and that was George W. Bush's baby based on the hoax of the Texas miracle. And then Obama came along, and Congress really wasn't prepared to rewrite No Child Left Behind, but because we were in the midst of this terrible 2008 recession, uh, the Obama administration got $100 billion from Congress for education. $95 billion of that went just to keep the doors open in the schools because tax revenues had declined so precipitously as a result of the recession of 2008 uh, that schools weren't even able to pay their teachers. So 95 out of the $100 billion went to keep the doors open. The other $5 billion was given to Arne Duncan with the instruction, reform the schools. And Arne Duncan relied on the Gates people and Eli Broad, this is another billionaire from California, they sent in people to help his administration design something called Race to the Top. And Race to the Top was, if you get higher test scores, you'll, you will get even more money. Uh, they created a race where the states, in order to be eligible, had to promise to open more charter schools, had to promise that they would adopt the Common Core, they called it college and career-ready standards, and also had to promise that they would judge teachers by the test scores of their students. Now, none of these were proven ideas. The Common Core hadn't even been completed at that point, and uh, charter schools were still an iffy proposition. But the states, in their eagerness to get some share of that nearly $5 billion that was being offered up, uh, rewrote their laws. And so 45 states fell in line with Arne Duncan's wishes, and 18 of them won hundreds of millions of dollars, including New York State. No state has seen any, any improvement as a result. That $5 billion was wasted. Now, Arne Duncan got his start when he was appointed by Chicago Mayor Richard Daley to be chief executive officer of Chicago's public schools in 2001. Uh, Arne Duncan was only 36 years old at the time. Had he had much experience with education policy at that point? No, I, I think he had been uh, in the budget office. I, I don't think he, he doesn't, he didn't have any education background. He, he, his program in uh, Chicago was called Renaissance 2010. The he, idea he, was, he was named, his title was chief executive officer, which sounds like uh, we were talking about thinking more in terms of a business or for-profit model in right. public schooling. Right. Well, that's what happened over these past 15 or 20 years uh, with Bloomberg, uh, with Mayor Daley, with a number of others who were business-minded. Their, their idea was the problem with the schools is that they should operate like businesses. They don't operate like businesses. So we need to have CEOs. Mm. We need to uh, not have a superintendent but a chancellor. Uh, when Bloomberg was in charge in New York, he appointed a lawyer, Joel Klein, to be the CEO uh, or the chancellor of the New York City schools. And he surrounded himself with uh, MBAs, not educators. And they tried to apply business methods and invented all kinds of interesting titles like chief knowledge officer, chief talent chief officer. Chief knowledge officer. Right. <laughs> not not uh, assistant superintendent in charge of uh, curriculum and academics, but chief knowledge officer. But this, this whole corporate mindset took hold 
And that's what we've been living through for the last 20 years. Everything was data. Everything had to be measurable. And this is why uh, the test scores have become not, the, not a way of measuring education, but the goal of education. Getting back to the Department of Education, um, Ronald Reagan, uh, well, I guess uh, conservatives have been trying to end the department uh, since Ronald Reagan was in office. He was the next president. And hasn't Neil McCluskey, the director of the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom, contended that the Department of Education is unconstitutional? What was the justification for that? And, and is that a widespread uh, uh, concept uh, view among conservatives? Well, conservatives have wanted to get rid of the Department of Education, but uh, I think what's more serious than that, I mean, I frankly wouldn't have minded if it had remained as part of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare because it would be in a better position than it is right now because it's so exposed and it's been handed over to someone who actually despises public education. So um, we have a worst case scenario with Betsy DeVos, uh, but the libertarian organizations are, don't like government. Uh, the, the, one of the organizations that I call attention to in my book is called ALEC, uh, the American Legislative Exchange Council. And it's, I wish that everybody who cared about education or for that matter the environment or gun control would familiarize themselves with this organization. Uh, it was created by libertarians in 1973. Uh, it's heavily funded by the Koch brothers, and now, now the one Koch brother, uh, and it's part of a, a long-range plan uh, to strip government of most of its functions. So ALEC produces model legislation. It has, its members are 2,000 state legislators, mostly from the Midwest and the South, and they get their model, they have these fabulous, luxurious resorts where they have their annual retreat, and they get their model legislation on how to get rid of environmental protection, how to get rid of business regulation, how to get rid of gun control, how to get rid of public schools, how to get rid of unions. This stuff has been going on underground for the last, uh, since 1973, almost 50 years. When conservatives contend uh, that uh, a federal education department is unconstitutional, do they argue that states should do something that the federal government cannot or, or will not do? Actually, what the conservatives want is they don't, and I'm not sure they would have said this 50, 50 years ago, it's not that they don't want a Department of Education, and although they don't, they really don't want public education. They want education to be privatized. They want the money to go to the parents to be used as the parents see fit. Uh, and so there are states now that are paying homeschoolers. So they consider public, public schools to, to be socialist? To Pardon? Do they consider public schools to be socialist? Yes. That's why they call them failing government schools, because when they use the term government schools, that's supposed to mean socialist, uh, the places where children are indoctrinated. I mean, it's all ridiculous, but... Uh, I always come back to that by saying, how do you feel about our failing military and our failing police <laughs> and our failing fire department and our failing highway system? I mean, w we rely so much on uh, the public sector to provide common goods, and one of those common goods is public education. But if the today's very, very far-right conservatives had their way, every parent would simply get a voucher for X dollars and then go wherever you want to go. Go uh, homeschool your child, uh, send them to your Aunt Bessie. Uh, forget about any kind of organized schooling. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM.
My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Diane Ravitch, whose latest book is Slaying Goliath, the Passionate Resistance, Improvisation, and the Fight to Save America's Public Schools, published by Knopf. But uh, we've been talking about how people on the far right have been critical, but education is a target for a wide range of politicians, from Donald Trump on the right to John Kasich, who presents himself as a kind of a, a moderate Republican, to Barack Obama. Uh, in general, how do Democratic proposals differ from Republican ones? Well, for, first of all, I want to disagree with you about John Kasich. One of his very first actions in Ohio was to try to enact a right-to-work law. And it was uh, put to a state referendum, and the public rejected it. He also— But uh, he appears on television now as a critic, yeah, right. he's as a, a never-Trumper. Yeah, he's a pretend moderate, because, in, at least in terms of education, uh, Ohio is overwhelmed with— uh, low-performing charter schools. M- many of their charter schools are ra- rated D and F by the state. Uh, they, it has vouchers. It has its voucher program. The only study that was conducted of Ohio's voucher program found that kids actually went lost ground. They, they went backwards. And now they're expanding it. And they've expanded it so much that they, they even want the suburbs to be in on the vouchers. And the suburban districts are furious because they're saying, you're, you're cutting into our tax base. So there's a revolt going on against this Republican extremism launched by John Kasich. So I've never bought this line that, uh, that he maybe he's looking to succeed Trump in, by being a never-Trumper. But uh, don't be fooled. He's no moderate. Uh, as for why Barack Obama went for the charters, it's ex- explained in, in a book about the charter movement, uh, written by uh, somebody whom I don't admire, so I won't repeat the name of his book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he tells, he writes about the b- origins of a group called Democrats for Education Reform. This group is active across the country, and they're all hedge fund managers. And they raise money for uh, privatizers and uh, for charters across the country. They'll put out a list of here are the politicians you should send money to, and suddenly $100,000, $200,000 comes in, and they will swamp local con- contests. And while they call themselves Democrats for Education Reform, I have serious doubts that, they, that very many of them are actually Democrats. I think they're, they are uh, uh, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing because they're undermining public education. Uh, DEFER, as it's known, was uh, its first speaker at its first meeting was Barack Obama, who was the senator at that time, thinking of running for president. And this Wall Street, Wall Street hedge fund group became the base of his fundraising operation. Now, I voted for Barack Obama twice. I think he was a wonderful president. I thought he brought dignity and respect and grace to the office. His education policy, however, was horrible. 
the uh, you you say it's time to stop calling these anti-school uh, advocates reformers and start calling them disruptors. That's I I, I can't call them reformers because. Uh, as and someone, whether they're Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or Donald Trump or Betsy DeVos, they all fall under that Cooper, that rubric. Yeah. Yes, because what they are doing is they're they're united in not supporting public schools, which is where almost ninety percent of our kids are. They are united in disrupting schools. They use language like "We are here to reinvent the schools." Lorraine Powell Jobs. Uh, we are here to reinvent the schools. Bill Gates. We're here to disrupt the schools. And I don't think schools need disruption. What they need is steady support. They need the money to, so that kids have what they need, teachers have the resources they need, so that they can have smaller class sizes. I, I, I have to rem, uh, remember an incident. When my last book came out, uh, the event was held in a large, uh, large synagogue in Pittsburgh, although there was no religious connotation to it. And it was a very large audience, about a 1,000 people. And they had performances and kids playing the guitar and kids playing other instruments. And at one point, a group of, of young people came marching down the aisle, and they were high-stepping and strutting. And the leader came up to the microphone. They were wearing tattered uniforms. And she said, we are what's left of the Westinghouse High School marching band. Hmm. We don't have uniforms, and we don't have instruments because our school can't afford them. This was in Pittsburgh. And at one point, I spoke to the leader of, of DFER, this hedge fund group, and we were trying to make common cause somewhere. And I said, would you put up the money to pay for the instruments and, and uniforms for this marching band? And he just laughed. He thought it was a joke. That's not what they're about. They're not about supporting public schools. And that's where 90, almost 90% of our kids are. And Bill Gates, uh, he says that public schools are obsolete. Uh, in a 2016 blog post, he described how things work at a charter school that he likes. He quote, you might set a goal like, I want to get into University of Washington. <laughs> well, well, what do you make of that? I, I, I tell the story in the book about how Bill Gates tried four times in a row to pass a state referendum in Washington state uh, to allow charter schools. And he lost the first three times. He was opposed by every parent group every civil rights group, uh, the Latinos, the NAACP, all, all opposed him, and he outspent them. The fourth time, he outspent them something like 17 to 1, and he won his referendum by like 1%. And so he got some charter schools. He's got about 1% or less of the kids in the state of Washington in his charter schools, and they were evaluated, and the evaluation by a very charter-friendly organization said, the charters perform no differently from the public schools. So what is this all about? Why isn't he taking all those millions of dollars and making sure that the, school, that the schools of Washington have what they need? Washington State, I have to add, has no income tax and no corporate tax. So it's, very, it's a very corporate-friendly state, and they've had lawsuits about underfunding of their public schools. I mean, the underlying story, there, there are two underlying sto stories in my, underlying stories in my book. One is, we have to pay attention to the dramatic inequality in our society, the dramatic gap in terms of wealth and income. And the other is the dramatic underfunding of our public schools. More than half the states today are spending less on school, their public schools than they did before the recession of 2008. And that makes a huge difference. I mentioned that he said uh, that a goal might be 
I want to get into the University of Washington, he didn't say a goal might be, I want to uh, become a, a, a poet. I want to learn how to, I want to be a ballet dancer or be a choreographer um, or, or study theoretical physics for that matter. Well, I think that- So it's, all, mean, it's all about business? I have, uh, on a number of occasions, tried to meet with Bill Gates and I've been rejected repeatedly. So I can't, I can't really say how he thinks, although I gather he did get a documentary made called Inside his, Bill Gates's Mind. I guess I may force myself to watch it so that I can understand. I think he thinks in numbers. The, the charter schools and standardized testing may be the, the most often debated proposals for school reform. Are there any significant uh, other significant proposals? Well, the, of those coming from the group, you know, we, we were talking about reformers mm -hmm. and disruptors. The ones who call themselves reformers have ideas that are completely linked either to privatization or to testing. And I go through every one of their proposals and say, well, that was tried and it failed, that was tried and it failed. They are bereft of ideas. So the book is called Slaying Goliath, and, and people will say to me, are you saying that this education reform movement is dead? And my answer is, no, it's not dead. It has so much money that it can't stop. There are, always, there are all these people, these uh, minions, who hangers-on, who love the idea of being paid $200,000, $300,000 a year to drop into Nashville or Atlanta or some other city and help capture their school board. Uh, so their ideas continue even though they failed. So my answer is Goliath is not dead. Goliath, however, is brain dead. Mm-hmm. But you, you kind of suggested earlier that one of the real targets of all of this is teachers' unions. So th to some degree, even though it doesn't, it isn't billing itself as such, this is an anti-union movement? To a large extent, yes. I mean, when you consider that the biggest, single biggest funder of the charter movement has been the Walton family, I believe this is their primary goal is to kill the teachers' union, and clearly they have not succeeded. The, uh, the teachers' union took a huge blow last year with a Supreme Court decision called Janus, uh, and so now anyone who belongs to a union does so voluntarily. There, there's no automatic checkoff or whatever, whatever it was called, and uh, they seem to have retained their membership, and I think the reason that they're retaining their membership and that there might even be a revival of unions is that people in this economy realize that on their own, they have no power. They're, most people are, are now living in the gig, the gig economy where they can be fired at a m minute's notice. Uh, the boss can come in and say, turn off your computer and clean, clean your desk and get out of here, uh, and unjustly. So unions give people, first of all, guaranteed health care, but also uh, they give them rights, the right to a hearing. Um, and I think that there, there may be yet a revival of the union movement, which I happen to think is a great idea because the unions built the middle class in this country, and we're losing the middle class. My guest is Diane Ravitch. Uh, this is Leonard Lopate at Large, and Diane Ravitch's latest book is uh, Slaying Goliath, The Passionate Resistance to Privatization and the Fight to Save America's Public Schools. It's from Knopf. Uh, you... Uh, there are for-profit colleges. Are they a model for these disruptors? Oh. And are they a success? Uh, the for-profit colleges, some of them have gone bankrupt. Uh, under Betsy DeVos, they're thriving because she was an investor in for-profit colleges. I actually, uh, 
there's a long history of trade schools that were for profit, and everyone understood, okay, I'm going to learn a trade. I'm going to pay for it. That's for-profit college. But now there are online for-profit colleges that are, frankly, just a ripoff, and the students are promised that they will get jobs, and they don't get jobs, and they're burdened with enormous student debt. And under the Obama administration, there was an effort to relieve students of the debt that was incurred in rip-off colleges. Most of these are rip-off colleges. And Betsy DeVos has again and again ruled in favor of the colleges and against the students. You uh, wrote in a tweet that, quote, Trump may be the first president in history who actually despises the federal government and is trying to get rid of it. Uh, But don't many far-right conservatives think that government has no role at all in social programs like schooling or health care or even roads and, and transportation? Well, this is, this is Trump's base. Uh, Trump, I mean, if, I guess if you talked about roads, they might say, well, we do need the government to provide roads. Well, he promised infrastructure, but we haven't, we haven't really seen no anything. We and have then, crumbling infrastructure. And then we have situations like Mitch McConnell and, and Lindsey Graham opposing funding New York's public schools, but aren't they happy to get government funding for, the, for uh, education programs in Kentucky and South Carolina? Well, of course, there's a lot of hypocrisy in all of this because, uh, as I guess Bernie Sanders has said, there's socialism for the rich. They're happy to have all of the program, you know, tax cuts, and uh, we've seen what the ta- what happened with the 2017 tax cuts, which benefited uh, the upper one percent. Uh, and any program that will be a, uh, end up in their pockets is they're fine with. What they don't like is spending money for people who are in need are spending money for what I consider the common good, whether it's uh, health, welfare, public schools. And they would just as soon have everybody go to uh, a religious school. But, you know, I think that we're going to face a crisis sometime this year when the Supreme Court comes down with its decision in this case called Espinosa versus Montana and says that if a child wants to go to a religious school, uh, that's their right and the public should pay for it because that's going to put an enormous strain on the public budget, and kids will be going to uh, really terrible schools. Uh, in the case of, all right, I'll just say something controversial. Uh, in the case of yeshivas, they may find themselves in a school that doesn't uh, teach in English uh, and doesn't prepare them to live in the 21st century. Uh, in the case of some of these evangelical schools, uh, they may be learning uh, biblical science. So it's a, And it's, that there's no such thing as evolution. And that of course not, and you know that the humans and dinosaurs coexisted, but they'll also be learning a lot that simply isn't true, uh, because that's what parent satisfaction trumps everything else. Who makes up the bulk of the ten to fifteen percent of students who attend private schools? Are they do they tend to be wealthier, or uh, or as you're suggesting, tend to be uh, more likely to be religious, go to parochial schools, to yeshivas, to evangelical schools? Well, it's it's not fifteen percent. It's more like I think about nine percent now are in private schools. Uh, they're obviously the elite private schools, uh, which have very high academic standards. And the vouchers will never, ever provide for anyone to go to the elite private schools because their tuition is so high. Uh, so the, the um, libertarians will say and the Trumpites will say, well, the rich have these choices. You should have the same choices. Jeb Bush would say this. But in fact, uh, the choices that the rich make cost 50000 a year and the vouchers worth $5,000 a year. 
So the choices that they have available to them are usually uh, underfunded religious schools with unqualified and uncertified teachers. And I guess what frightens me about this is I, I really worry for the future of our country uh, if we don't uh, turn this around and recognize that having a very high-quality educational system is very important to America. I want to get back to John Kasich. <laughs> yes. In 2015, when he was Ohio governor, uh, he uh, said, and he is running for president, uh, if I were king in America, I would abolish all teachers' lounges where they sit together and worry about woe is us. And then he added, if you're a terrible teacher, then you should be doing something else. Uh, once you control for disparities in, in resources and social economic effects, what does the evidence say about teacher performance? Well, this was just another example of John Kasich uh, complaining about teachers, having absolutely no basis for it, uh, and blaming teachers if kids get low test scores. Uh, and it's To me, it's a, a, another evidence that he really knows nothing about education and that he used his time as governor uh, to attack teachers, to attack public schools, uh, to attack unions, and to do the usual uh, far-right uh, kind of song and dance. So why do you think that this has not been one of the major issues being brought up by the various Democratic candidates? About John Kasich? No, he's not no, 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 <laughs> no, about, about uh, education in general. and, and You know, uh, I, I have, because of working years ago in Washington and then having, uh, I, I was at the Brookings Institution for many years, I've interacted lots of times with politicians, and mostly they don't think about education at all. Uh, they have an aide on their staff who thinks about it and then briefs them on, on the next vote that's coming up. Uh, there are very few that get into the weeds. One of the ones that I, I have great respect for is uh, uh, Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro from Connecticut. Uh, she's a brilliant, uh, brilliant woman who is in charge of appropriations for education. And she has been roasting Betsy DeVos on all of her, Betsy, on all of her budget cuts. But by and large, uh, when you talk to a senator, they really haven't thought about education much. They don't think about vouchers, charters. They're not even sure what the terms mean. This is why, for example, I don't give much credence to the polls because the polls, when you ask people about vouchers or charters, number one is you have to ask, do you know what they are? And the answer is usually, not really. Can you explain them to me? So those polls are meaningless. But you say that when these things come up for votes, on the whole, the voters vote against them, and yet you would think that politicians would notice that and, yeah. uh, and make that, this one of their causes. You would think so. I mean, uh, one of the big events in my book is the story of the referendum in Massachusetts in 2016 uh, where the Walton family decided that they uh, wanted to expand charters in Massachusetts. Now, this is typical of what's going on in this country. The Waltons do not live in Massachusetts, but they sent millions of dollars. Michael Bloomberg sent, spent, sent millions of dollars to try to push a referendum in Massachusetts so that Massachusetts would have an endless new supply of new charters. And uh, when they did, first did the polling, they found out that, uh, well, they always use this line of, we're doing this for to save poor black and Hispanic children from failing public schools. And so most people say, yeah, that's a good idea. I'm for that. But then the teachers 
talk to the parents, and the parents talked to the civil rights groups and the labor unions, and everybody got together and said, wait a minute, these guys are billionaires. They don't care about our kids. They just care about having more charters. And by the time the vote came around in November of 2016, uh, the, the proposition was overwhelmingly defeated by the people of Massachusetts. So it requires public education to understand that if you set up a parallel school system, you're going to hurt the primary school system. And it this is why I write books, to try to get the public to understand that there is a, an existential threat to public education and to our country, because if we don't educate our children, uh, we don't have a future. As the median age of Americans increases, is there a risk that interest in improving education will decline? I think that... Um, there's a, that possibility, but I, I that even though people get older, they are parents, they are grandparents, and they are citizens. And that if you come to accept this consumerism as your way of life, uh, then we will live in a very nasty and brutish world where we're all on our own and we have, we have nothing but the police to protect us from each other. Well, what is your sense, we have no time left, but what is your sense of what's going to happen in the future. Are you going to lose this battle? No, I'm going to win it. <laughs> You're going to win it because I'm going to win because, because you got I, right on your side. I'm on, I'm on the right side of history and because parents are waking up and and uh, parents and teachers together are uh, can't be defeated. Diane Ravitch, thank you so much for being on our show today. Her latest book is called Sly, Slaying Goliath: The Passionate Resistance to Privatization and the Fight to Save America's Public Schools. It is published by Knopf, and it's been a great pleasure uh, hearing your thoughts on this matter. Thank you so much for inviting me. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Hugh Sansom who produced this segment. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter. Also, our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And remember, you can leave comments on all of those sites as well. We hope you'll join us tomorrow when I'll be speaking to gardening expert and regular contributor to our show, Pete Moroski. We'll be taking a lot of your calls. Spring is almost here. We'll see you then. <laughs>